Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to those mothers in the room. And for us who have mothers, make sure, because it's just me, make sure you say Happy Mother's Day uh, today. This is an incredible day where we get to celebrate those special women in our life whose sacrifice, whose love, whose um, devotion, who, who have typically been the ones who've done all the things that we would never want any human to ever do to us as an adult that we're so grateful they did when we were a child, right? I mean, it's just this incredible moment in this day that we celebrate as a culture. And um, I don't know about your household, but in my household, uh, mom's a big deal. And uh, just recently, Ella, um, I was putting her to bed because Jenny and I rotate so that she can have some sanity. And, I, and so it was kind of my night to get to put her to bed, and I was saying, hey, uh, sweetie, daddy's, this is daddy's bedtime night, and she's like, but I want mommy, and I was like, well, you get me, I'm sorry, the B team is showing up this evening, and so you've got me, and, but I want mommy, she's, you know, you've got a bald head, and I'm like, thank you, I'm, I'm aware that I'm bald, I, you know, but I appreciate that, and I'm not sure why that is an issue for me putting you to bed. And she was like, Mommy, but your face is so beautiful. And she just grabs um, Jenny's face, and she's like, Mommy, can I just please cut your face off and take it to bed with me? And, and I was like, wow, that's disturbingly sweet. Like, it's equal parts really disturbing and equal parts really sweet. But in that moment, um, Jenny, in her wisdom, is like, would you like a picture of me instead? Like, instead of ripping my face off, how about I give you a picture, which is the next best thing of my face ripped off. And, and so that night, uh, we put a little picture of Jenny and Ella on her, like, right beside her bed. And while I'm putting Ella to bed, she just stares at Jenny's face. And I'm just like, this is so sweet and disturbing. Like, I really am the B team right now, aren't I? And, um, but that, that kind of like moment gives, just gives you a glimpse into my daughter's heart for her mom and why Mother's Day is a big deal in our house and why I'm sure it's a big deal in yours as well is because there is that special love and bond that's represented there. And, uh, and I think that those moments... Those kind of moments do give you glimpses, and this series that we're in called See the World is about having a glimpse into the world, to see the world differently, to engage with the world differently than maybe our typical operating system and our typical mode of operating with the world. And last week, we talked about imagination and the power of imagination to either to, to pull us into a world of wonder where we are part of engaging with God to create a better place around us or to, to be sucked into imagination as adults and to let it fuel worry. That as adults, we all have an active imagination. We just, most of the time, if we're not careful, we, we lost the, the use of it to create wonder and to inspire us into making the world a better place and instead have used it to think through all the worst-case scenarios in our day and to, to get sucked up into insecurity and what did that statement mean? And all the ways that the world's pressing in. And that imagination is critical if we're going to begin to see the world because imagination is an invitation from God to step into the world and make it a better place. And this week, we want to start to dive into what does that look like to begin to create a better place around you, to, to see the world, to engage the world differently. And ironically, my daughter's statement about her mom's face is a great starting point, that I want to take another mom moment a mom, a mom moment that maybe you've never even noticed before if you've spent time reading the Bible, but it's a mom moment that I think gives us a glimpse 
and to the type of people that we're meant to be if we're going to step into this world and to see the world and engage the world differently than how, maybe how we've done in the past. It's a mom moment found um, in the life of Jesus. It's just a couple of quick verses, but in these, these verses are a lot of culturally loaded exchanges uh, that in the midst of that example, we see an example for us. Um, I referenced the Encounter Church app earlier. If you have that or if you've downloaded it, you click on message notes, you'll find the passage already loaded for you or the Bible if you want to get, read a little bit around it. Uh, but it's in John 19. If you were here last week, I, I talked about John, and John's a unique character. John's one of the authors of the four biographies that were written about Jesus, that there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those are the four biographies of Jesus that we find in what's called the New Testament. And that each one of those um, authors had a different perspective. All of them were written either out of an eyewitness or interviews with eyewitness account. And John is unique because John's book is written later in life because John is a lot younger than all the other authors. John is seeking to really engage and, and display Jesus in a way that the other authors didn't know. See, John had a special relationship with Jesus. Because of John's age, Jesus took him under his wing as kind of a younger brother type. And so John was given access. John was part of conversations. John was in proximity with Jesus in his, some of his hardest, darkest, most profound, powerful moments. And John had insight. And so that's where the book of John comes from, is John's eyewitnesses' accounts of what he sees as he kind of followed along Jesus as his youngest disciple. John is wrapping up this letter, this book, in the chapter that I want to jump into. And it's in this moment that he, he calls out a part of the story that oftentimes we, we we're not familiar with around the cross. So John 19, verse 25, uh, near the cross of Jesus is the setting. Right? Before we even jump in, the, the context for where this conversation is about to unfold is at the cross. And for those who maybe grew up in church, uh, you maybe are familiar with the idea of the cross, but for most of us who are disconnected from Roman history, the idea of the cross may be foreign to you. It's something that maybe perhaps you wear around your neck or that someone you know who you love wears around their neck. But you have to realize that if someone coming from first century, if someone alive in Jesus' time had been sucked into a time machine and dropped into our world today, they would have been weirded out by our use of the cross as a necklace. I mean, in the same way that if you happen to leave here to go to a restaurant today to celebrate Mother's Day, and the person who walks up has a syringe or an electric chair dangling, right? You'd be like, oh, that's a lovely electric chair necklace that you're wearing. Oh, thank you. I got it from my grandmother, right? I mean, you'd be like, that's weird. Like, that's not normal to wear a capital punishment charm, Right? But that's essentially what we do when we wear necklaces. The, the cross is one of the most excruciatingly painful capital punishments ever devised by man. It was only utilized for 60 years in human history. The Romans stilled this idea from the Assyrians. And the Romans, because they want to make everything bigger and better, right, take this idea of the cross that the Assyrians had invented in the B.C. era leading up to Jesus' birth, and they make it brutal, Roman generals would, would ride into villages, they would conquer cities, and they would, to make the, kind of make the point that you don't mess with Rome, they would crucify um, thousands of people along the road every 15 feet 
So that for miles walking in, if you happen to be a new, a different army or you happen to be a man walking back to that village, any idea of rebellion would have been squashed because you're locking eyes every 15 feet with someone who's been crucified. It's this brutal thing. Most of us aren't familiar with the mechanics. My undergrad was in biochemistry, and I remember jumping into the idea of the cross the first time I really ever studied it in college uh, and seeing it through the lens of, of the medical field and the physiological aspects. See, I would have, been, I would have told you prior to that uh, that you die on the cross because you bleed to death. That's kind of most people's ideas, that it's just this, like, you're up there, you're dangling, it's, it's painful, it's brutal. You probably bleed to death. But in the midst of that, that's not actually how you die. There's so much pain. Have you ever had hit your funny bone? You ever felt how painful that is? That's a result of a, of a nerve that runs along both arms, and you actually have an equivalent in your leg. And the Romans really were good because they would actually, that's, those were the nerves they would target when they would hang someone on the cross. So think about that. You have a piece of metal stuck inside that nerve. Every time you move, it's like fire going up your arms and through your legs. And typically they would beat you so that you were almost to the point of exhaustion or collapse. Because the mechanics of the cross, when you would hang there, you didn't die on the cross because you bled to death. You died on the cross because you couldn't breathe. Because if you did this, and this is how your body weight's supporting, your diaphragm, the muscle that uses to, to expand your ribcage so that you can breathe in oxygen and exhale, which is essential for life, that mechanism, that, that your muscle is no longer able to engage by the way you hang. And so to breathe means you have to bounce up the cross to get a breath. And you have to endure the flame and the fire shooting through your nerves. And then you collapse again. And that people died on the cross not because they bled to death, but because the pain and the agony of suffering for every single breath you took would get so strong and so overwhelming, you eventually had no more fight in you to breathe anymore. And I know that you're like, I thought this was Mother's Day. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. But I want you to understand the cross. Because for many of us, even if you grew up in church, you don't... You, you never knew why the cross was this horrendous thing. You just, we wear it around our neck. It's polished. It's jewelry. It's not a punishment. It's not a tool to destroy a human being in public display like it was then. And this is where Jesus finds himself. He finds himself in this excruciating, painful place on a hill outside of Jerusalem, completely embarrassed and on display in shame. And he's doing it according to Christian belief because of our brokenness so that he could bring beauty out of our broken lives so that he could restore hope where we've lost hope, that he's doing it for us. And you put yourself in just a frame, what your mind's experience for that brief second, that phantom pain that shot through your arm when I said the funny bone, like you can kind of sort of start to realize how excruciating that would have been for him. And this is where John picks up the story. He's like, at the cross stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So Jesus is there, and instead of having the crowds that used to follow him, instead of having the 12 that used to follow him, he's got a few, a few people, predominantly mothers. 
That first of all, when we celebrate Mother's Day, it's because even at the cross, the only people that really stood by him were those mothers in his life. That they reflect this type of love that's stable and sturdy and dependable, no matter what, I got your back kind of love. And that's what we celebrate on Mother's Day. Is that, and Jesus at the cross, his mother, his aunt, and some of his close followers stay. And only one disciple that we know of is really close enough to hear the conversation playing out. And it's that disciple that serves as the backdrop. It says, when Jesus saw his mother there. And I don't want to jump over that because I think that that's so incredibly profound. In all that I just told you about Jesus in the agony and the anguish, sitting across slightly down about 12 feet from him is is a woman who's experiencing her worst moment too. He's God on display dying for humanity. Jesus' worst moment in life ever. And there, just 12 feet away, is his mother having her worst moment ever. Because I can't imagine, as a parent, that the worst thing has to be to watch your child pass away before you do, right? I mean, that's got to be the most excruciating, painful event for a parent. But to add to that insult is to watch your child suffer on a cross in front of you. And that Jesus does something that, while it's only five words, we can miss how heavy it is. In the midst of his personal anguish, in the midst of his darkest moment, he was aware of her darkest moment too. And the reason that's so profound is, I don't know about any of you, but in, when I'm suffering, when I'm in pain, when I'm going through difficult circumstances, my MO is not to notice all those people around me. Right? When, when I'm sick, if I get something inside of me, viral or bacteria, you might as well bring in one of the machines that beep and hook me up to an IV and give me a nurse call button. I, I mean, I go flatline. I'm like, I'm falling apart. I can't even get out. Like, I can't even get a bottle of water. I mean, I just need, I need somebody to take care of me. You know? I mean, if, if I'm sick, I'm like, Jenny. She's like, yeah, it's hard to talk Come closer. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I want to update my will and bring in the lawyer. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I don't care what's happening around me. The house could be burning down. All I care about is my pain, my suffering, my agony. That pain by nature makes us very selfish, doesn't it? When you're hurting and when you're grieving, the most important thing in your world is you. And it's this profound act of Jesus lifting his eyes and he sees his mom. He notices her. That as people who follow Christ or people in this room or listening online who say that we are Christians, we are not given an exemption in our pain, in our difficult moments, and in our challenging circumstances to become self-consumed. That Jesus does something that's incredibly profound and liberating. Even in his darkest moment, he still has an ability to see others and theirs too. And not only does he see her, it says that when he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. And the disciple whom he loved, that was the code word for John. 
the writer of this. That um, John could have used his name, but what he really valued was that Jesus had this special relationship. And for the rest of his life, when, when people introduced himself, he wanted everyone to know, no, 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 I want you to know who I am. I'm that disciple that Jesus called his younger brother. Like, I'm that guy. And so John, throughout the book of John, does not use his name. He uses this as his kind of mark. And what he does is he says when he sees them, now, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And, and if I walked to, to any of you on the street, ladies, and I said woman, it probably wouldn't go over very well, right? It's not typically the best way to introduce yourself and or to build relationships with someone of the opposite sex, right? But in this day and time, and then the, the verbiage being used here, woman is a sign of respect. It's an honor, which is something that Jesus does. And in the midst of a, a modern society where we celebrate so many different things, it's easy to forget that in this time frame, women were property. And this is a really dark time in human history. Women are property. And Jesus frequently throughout the Gospels elevates women. He honors them. He doesn't treat them like property. Just the fact that he says woman is a radical cultural statement in his day. But he says, woman, here is your son. And he points to John. And, and he says, to the disciple, here is your mother. That he, in this moment, remember when I told you about the cross? I told you about the cross because I wanted you to feel the weight. You say anything on the cross, it's painful. This is towards the end of Jesus' life, which meant he had to bounce his way up to the cross to get a breath to say, woman, here is your son. And then he collapses. And then he bounces up the cross again. And to say, here is your mother, and he collapses again. Like, it is an incredibly powerful, painful moment where he's arranging the future welfare of his mother. You see, underneath this, it's easy to run through this. The reason Jesus does this is that in his day and age, there was not a social security office. There was not a general welfare system. There was no concept of philanthropy the way that we have it today. If you were a widowed woman and you had no one else in your life, it typically meant that the death of your oldest son was your death. Kind of, It's foreshadowing. Because there's no one to take care of you. There's no one to pay your bills. You see, what we know about Mary is that Joseph's passed away. She's widowed. And here she is on her cross, and her social security check, her welfare, her provision, her care is passing away right in front of her. And as the oldest son, he would have had a responsibility that would have passed on to him. He would have taken a promise and an oath that would have passed down when Joseph died. It would have been as the oldest son, he bore the responsibility to take care of his mother. And in that moment, Jesus takes a breath and he arranges and fulfills a promise that he had given her when her dad died, when, when, her, when his dad, earthly dad, and her husband had passed away. I mean, Jesus kept his word on the cross to his mother. Like, that's, that's heavy. When most of us would have looked at our circumstances and used it as an exemption, he fulfills his promise to her. And the reason 
he says, John, here's your mother, is because if you notice how it says Mary, his mother, and his mother's sister in, the first, in verse 25, what most historians believe is that John, this young guy standing there, is his cousin. Because John's mother is Mary's sister. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, is John and James's aunt. John is Jesus's cousin. This is why this cultural moment can be missed by us, is because this was a very appropriate thing to do, to pass on that responsibility to the next of kin that was available. He's saying, John, I'm dying. You have to take responsibility for her. Which is why when you read the rest of John 19, things that Jesus says on the cross after this moment is completely missed, because what what happens is that John grabs Mary and, he, and he, he takes her away from the cross. And so there's moments that are not recorded in John 19, and it quickly goes to John 20 where Jesus is resurrected because John is absent in all these circumstances because he has now become the provider and caretaker for Mary, the mother of Jesus. And here's why... I, to, to frame all of this, I think it's really easy in this powerful mom moment to say, oh, that's Jesus. He's God. He does that stuff. But what we see is not just Jesus being God who does that stuff. It's also Jesus giving us an example of what we should do too. And so let me press into our lives by pressing into his. You see, what Jesus was doing on the cross was that powerful mom moment gave us a glimpse into how he, what he would have been taught growing up. Um, it, would have, it, would, it gave us a glimpse in not just the character of God, but the character of who Christ was specifically and, and what he calls us to be as people who follow him. That a verse comes to mind when you read that, that moment and you, you go back and you look how as a Jewish boy would he have grown up? What, he would, what would he have heard? What would the weight what was those significant verses? What were those powerful moments that would have formed him? And one of those verses is a song that would have been sung that he would have been intimately aware with that comes from Psalm 15. Psalm 15, if you remember me saying this in the past, that the Psalms are the songbook. What we just did today um, with the, the lyrics on the screen was sing a modern day songbook. The, the ancient Jewish people had a songbook too. It's called Psalms. And the Psalms... Psalm 15 was one of those songs that they would have sung. And Psalm 15 was all around the type. It was a song that was an inspirational song. Who are the type of people? What are the character traits of godly men and women? What are the character traits of people who reflect the best of what God has called us to reflect? And in Psalm 15, a series of character traits are sung about. And one of them, Psalm 15.4, um, is... I think what's undergirding this moment with Jesus, and it's why I can say to all of us who are following Jesus and, and say that we, we kind of, we're Christians and we want to reflect him, that this is our guidebook. This is our playbook that Jesus pulls from this and who he is. In Psalm 15, 4, we see this, this simple verse where it says that um, out of the question, who can ascend the holy hill? Like, who are these, what are the character traits of these people? And one of the character traits is he who keeps or he who, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. That Jesus is a man who's sitting on the cross dying and suffering and he sees his mom and he keeps his word to her. 
even in the midst of his darkest hour, he sees her in the midst of hers too. And this is critical because for many of us, we, we're surrounded by words. We see words every day. They come into our phone. We see them on billboards. But you have to remember, Jesus didn't grow up in the society that we grew up in. He's growing up as a, Jesus, as a Jewish boy. And young Jewish boys are growing up in a world where words really matter. We see more words in the course of a week that Jesus probably ever saw in his entire lifetime. We are inundated with words, and because of that, we've lost their value. But Jesus grows up in a world and in a context where words matter so much that the Jewish mythology, mythologies of creation, the very origins of how God creates the world, is explained through God speaking the world into existence. It's words that's the mechanism for creation. It's words that speak the world and the universe into existence. It's words. The Jewish Faith, the Jewish people, the Jewish context that Jesus rises up in is very, very focused on the power of words and their significance. And one of the ways that they flesh that out is not just on the power of words, but that words are a contract. They're an exchange. Words mean something. That God can say, let there be light, and light happened. Words matter. And as a young boy, he would have known that his word matters. That just because it's easy to speak doesn't mean that it's easy. That words have weight to them. They have creation weight. They have shaping weight. They have life-changing weight. I mean, we, we forget how much words matter. Just recently, in the midst of this construction project, we had a reminder of that. Uh, and the 30 seconds before we signed our contract, the actual lease for the building, we're sitting there in our final negotiations, and um, we happened to say to the owner of the building, we said, hey, we've asked you about asbestos, and he, they didn't think there was any. And we said, look, um, since you're sure there's no asbestos, would you mind covering it if we find it, since there's not any? Right? And he said, Sure. Yeah, I'll agree to that. And we flip over the contract and we write five words. Five words on the back of that contract. 30 seconds later, we're shaking hands, we're walking out, it's done. The deal is set. The set, by the way, is within words. We used words to define that whole agreement. And those five words specifically come back to us three weeks ago when we're told that they found asbestos in the space. They found asbestos all over the floor in the space. About $50,000 worth of asbestos. And those five words saved us $50,000 because words matter and words have weight. And we live in a society where we skip over words' power. We, we say them we speak them, we write them, we blast them, we tweet them. We do all kinds of fancy things with words, but one thing that we struggle to do with them is to keep them. You see, words only matter if you keep them. Some of you are in this room, and the biggest weight that you carry in your life 
is the fact that someone persistently did not keep their word to you. Some of you have had relationships broken and you bear the burden of baggage because of someone's words. Whether they didn't follow through or whether they used them as a weapon. That words matter. And just because they roll off the tongue really easy doesn't mean that we should be flippant with them. That what should mark us, that what Jesus demonstrates on that cross is that what should mark us with our words are not how clever they are, it's not how verbose they are, it's not how how much they rhyme or how succinct or how good of a tweet or a Facebook post, right? Or how powerfully binding that legal contract is that you wrote. What matters with our words is that we keep them. That what this world desperately needs is men and women, young men, young women, who believe that when they say a word, it matters. That when we speak words, that we come with it with a passion to keep them too. Because for, for many of us, we carry the weight and the baggage of people's words that have not been kept. And we've allowed their inability to keep the words to mark how we see others. That all of a sudden the word I do doesn't quite have the same weight when you've walked through a divorce. Right? Because all of a sudden, that word doesn't have, well, the first time it meant something, but now it doesn't. And we allow our past, we allow our experiences in our past to weaken our view of what words matter. And so we start to flippantly use them too. We start to, without ever verbalizing, we start putting asterisks up top everything we say. When we say I do, it means if it's convenient for me. When we give our agreement, it means, well, as long as it doesn't inconvenience or hurt me too much. And what Jesus draws from is this Jewish concept of that our words matter and that keeping our words matter, even if it hurts us. Because words are a contract. They're a commitment. They don't have exceptions for convenience or hard circumstances. And I know none of us would disagree with that. But imagine if we walked out this week and this is the way we lived and loved. Imagine if you, what you said, actually you stayed with it and stuck with it. What if the words you used with your spouse, your roommate, your kids, your coworkers, what if you chose those words to build? What if you chose those words because you were going to keep them? What if you used your words not as a weapon, but something that could work to the good of those around you? I mean, I desperately want that in my life. I mean, just a week ago, I mean, this is just being, I am so afraid. My biggest fear in life, my biggest fear is not I get hit by a bus because I think I'd leave a pretty good dent and the cameraman would make sure he'd catch it. Right? Like, I'm not concerned about anything crazy or some, like, I don't know, fill in the blank. I'm not afraid of sickness. The thing that terrifies me the most is that I get to the end of my life and I didn't follow through with what I said. That I look in the mirror and that I'm disappointed not with the world, but with myself. 
that my kids, that my wife, that my people in my life could use my words to make accusations against me. They're like, oh, we've all been around those people, right? We're like, uh, they talk a good game. Don't pay attention to them. Don't listen to them. Like, I want my word to be good. I want my word to be strong. I want my daughter to grow up knowing that words matter. And that when her dad says, I'm going to stay and I'm going to stick around, that I will. Or when I said to my wife, when I promised to God in her presence that I would love her in such a way that she would be better, that he was entrusting her to me, and that as long as her hand was in mine, and until that moment her hand slipped into his, that I would do my best to love her in such a way that she would be better because of her time with me. I don't say that because I figured it out. I say it because I'm so desperate. That's my daily prayer. God, I want to be a person who keeps my word. And last week, Ella, um, I've got a lot to do, and um, you probably aren't aware of this, but every Saturday night I disappear from my home, and I go back and make sure, is this message clear? Is it going to make sense? People, are when they're looking at me, are they going to look at me not with the what, the, what in the world is he talking about? But, uh, oh, that makes sense to me kind of look. Okay, because I can tell the difference. Okay, I, I can see it. You don't realize I can see it, but I can see it. And so I work really hard to make sure. And um, this was a week where I've been traveling because I've been traveling a lot recently. And so when I travel and there's meetings, it's harder to work on messages. And so I was getting ready to walk out of the house Saturday night to finalize the message from a couple weeks ago. And Ella says, Daddy, I want you to put me to bed. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so, you know, I'm like, I'm going to be a ninja with bedtime. I'm like, wham, bam, 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 pray, and then slide out, right? Like, I, that's how I'm going to roll. And I, I go through, we have our little prayer time. We have our Bible reading time. We have our little talking about life, giving her a place to kind of decompress from the day. And if there's anything that happened that I want to hear about, that's when it's usually going to leak out. And so that's why we're really kind of pretty, I, don't, I say religious, but I mean religious about our bedtime is because we know that for her little heart, that's where if someone said something that day that's, that's hurt her or she's done something that hurt others, that's when it typically comes out. And um, she said, Daddy, w- would you rock me and sing to me before you leave? I'm like, yeah. And, and so this is two weeks ago. I, I pick her up. She is not a baby, and I do not lift weights. So I'm sweating. I'm sweating right now, thinking about how much I was sweating, holding her body. And she's like, boom, you know. And I just have her. And I sing the same thing I've been singing from the first day I've, I've like, held her. It's like, and I won't give up on us, even if the skies get rough. I'm giving you all my love. I'm still looking up. And I'm like, you know, because I'm rocking this 40-pound child while I'm doing that. And, and I'm not saying it because I'm doing I'm saying that as my prayer over her. Because I, as a pastor, spend way too much time sitting down with people whose lives have been broken because someone did not keep their word. And if we're going to be people who see the world, We look past ourselves and engage them where they are. If we're going to be people who don't just speak to the world, but who keep our word when we do, then I think it goes back to us 
grabbing hold of this characteristic that grabbed hold of Jesus that he demonstrated that day of keeping our word. And for those who are maybe here who have been damaged with the power of words, I would say this to you, to go back to that moment that Jesus was on the cross because of the brokenness that people have done to you. And that he stayed on the cross, that he kept his word, even if those in your life have not. That he stood by even when others walked away. And that for those who are in this room who maybe your life has been plagued chronically by not keeping your own word, and you've brought brokenness into the lives of others, that I would remind you that the cross speaks forgiveness over you if you're willing to accept it. That there is a beauty in the very act that Jesus does on that cross to speak over you and I. And for those who are maybe in this room, and this is the first Mother's Day that you have had since losing your mom. Or maybe you're here and you hate Mother's Day because Mother's Day is a reminder that you're still not a mom. That I would say that the cross speaks over you, that there is a God you can talk to who understands suffering, who has walked through dark nights and brokenness. And that it's not just the cross that speaks, but that it's the fact that even in all of that brokenness for you and me that he took on, Three days later, he walked out of a tomb and he conquered it and he brought life where there had been death. And I would say to those who are in the midst of seasons of grieving that there is darkness and there is grief, but there is also, there's also joy that comes in the morning and there's also a better day that you can engage with that if your dreams have been stuck in a tomb, that in Christianity, we celebrate a God who calls tombs to be wide open and for life to breathe in them. That your marriage can be better than what it is right now. That your life can look different than where you find yourself. That is the message and the hope that Easter brings. That is the message and the love spoken over us. That's who he is when he sees his mom, and that's who we're called to be as we see the world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Pray that you would speak, even in the midst as we sing and respond, that you would speak into our hearts a reminder of being loved. And uh, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your demonstration, your faithfulness. Help us to be people who don't just speak words but who keep them too. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. Um, we, if it's your first time here, at the end of every message and kind of the last five minutes as we wrap up, we just use it as a time to sing, to, to, to kind of remind ourselves of the things that's been said to us and to process into our own personal lives. That for maybe for some of you, whether you're listening online or you're in the room, this is just a moment you need to go back and say, you know what? That's right, that because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done, my life does not have to be marked by the words I don't keep. That there's forgiveness for me. That there's hope for me. And that for, for some of you, maybe it's just that if you're sitting beside that mom in your life, whether you're, you're married, whether it's you're the child, just to squeeze it and say, thank you. Thank you for the way that you demonstrated 
so much of the love, so much of the faithfulness that you see. And for some of you, it may just be this moment where you need to carve out and say, God, thank you that you know what it's like to suffer, that you know what it's like to struggle, that you know what it's like to be in a place of loneliness or a place of hopelessness. Thank you for the cross. And most importantly, thank you for the resurrection. And just to to say, God, will you bring that into my life? Would you bring that hope into my life? Because I'm struggling with that today. And allow today to be not just a day marked by grief, but to allow him to whisper hope and joy into your soul as well. That there can be a better, brighter day because of his victory. And uh, for those who um, call Encounter Church Home, we, we carve this space out to also use it as a way to give back, that we are generous people, that we are engaged all around the world with all kinds of acts of generosity and love and compassion, that, that families will be fed today around the world because of your generosity and the way that we engage, the way we see the world, is we believe that we should engage the hopelessness with hope. And we, we're able to do that, not just in our own community, but around the globe because of people who call Encounter Church Home um, using this time to give, whether through the app or through the basket that gets passed around. And for those who are maybe um, here for the first time, you, you'd like to start a conversation, get to know us. This is where you can use the connection card or maybe even a prayer request just to invite us into praying for you because we take that as an honor and we pray for you. We, we know that there are some struggles that are happening in the midst of your life right now. And so whatever that response needs to be today, I wanna invite you into it. The band will lead us. And then afterwards, uh, someone will come up and close us out and you will get to go and celebrate those incredible women in our lives. Thank you.